Arrakis. Dune. Wasteland of the Empire. And the most valuable planet in the universe. Because it is here, and only here, where spice is found. The spice. Without it, there is no commerce in the Empire. There is no civilization. Arrakis. Dune. Home of the spice. Greatest treasure in the universe. And he who controls it, controls our destiny. Welcome to Now Playing's Dune Retrospective Series. Do we have worm sign? Who shall we have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen? Part of the Now Playing David Lynch Review Series. Remember, walk without rhythm and we won't attract the worm. Hosted by Stuart. My greatest student and my greatest disappointment. Jacob. I can kill with a word. And his word shall carry death eternal. And Arnie. Men admire his courage. It will take more than courage to survive what's coming. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. Try looking into that place where you dare not look. You'll find me there staring back at you. And join Stuart at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Frank Herbert's Dune novels. They know a storm is coming. Time to let them know I'm here. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. It's not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I'm permitted to pass over me and through me. Listener discretion is advised. May the hand of God be with you. May the hand of God be with us all, Duncan. Today we're discussing Children of Doom, starring Alec Newman, Julie Cox, Ian McNeese, Stephen Burkhoff, Daniela Amavia, James McAvoy, and Susan Sarandon, directed by Greg Yatanis. You have no idea who I am! Well, actually, you do. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA? Hey, this is Jacob, and I feel great. I've got so much energy. I've lost 25 pounds in the last three weeks, ever since I've started the ancient Fremen diet. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like Atkins, except spice instead of carbs. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, this is our new venture. If donation drives don't work out, Jacob's going to sell diet routines. (laughs) (laughs) It's just basically heroin. You're just going to do drugs and not eat. (laughs) You are looking like such an abomination these days, I wanted to tell you. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we're told the story of Dune was far from over last time, but... Not that far. I was okay with it. But it was a big ratings hit. People did like this, even though I was kind of underwhelmed, as I usually am with sci-fi productions. I didn't hate the movie last week, but I wasn't itching for more. But somebody was, and so it got a green light. And a lot of the same creative people are still involved, though not necessarily in the same way. John Harrison, who wrote and directed last week, did write this screenplay. They did shoot it in Prague again. They did have exactly the same budget again. But there's a lot of new people here, too. John stepped aside and gave directing reins to another TV guy and the cinematographer, the 
composer, a lot of the behind the scenes talent wasn't available or didn't make themselves available to do it again. So I think that although it is very much a continuation of what we saw last week, it's got a different look and feel too. Yeah, I read that the first Dune miniseries was sci-fi's highest rated program at that time. And as of 2004, Children of Dune and Dune were the two highest rated. So they had a hit on their hands. I mean, I said that I was interested in it based upon last week's miniseries, and I was eager to go into the sequel and a little bit wondering why this was going to be the last Dune movie we're going to talk about. But we'll get to that at the end. I was just anxious to go back and see what happened to Muad'Dib and his concubine and everybody else? Yeah, and this is based on two Frank Herbert novels. It should be said that it's a three-night miniseries. The first night is one book in its entirety, pretty much. Dune Messiah, which was written about three years after the original Dune, and then Children of Dune, which came about a decade after the original Dune, is nights two and three. And so it was rather ambitious to, you know, last time they took three nights to break down one book, here two books, double the pages, and it certainly doesn't lack for ambition. And it says Frank Herbert's Children of Dune. He wrote Messiah and Children of Dune. These aren't other writers that have taken over yet at this point? Yeah, absolutely not. Frank Herbert, until his death, was the only author for the Duneverse, as I guess it's called. <laughs> and he, he, yeah, it's his baby, really. And even after he died, a lot of the continuing novels have been written by his children. So it stays within the family. But I'm covering all those over at Books and Nachos. So if you care to hear about those source novels, my thoughts are out there. And if I'm right, there's only two novels not by him, right? And they were based on his notes just because his last book, he died on a cliffhanger? No, there's 16 novels novels other than the six he wrote <laughs> oh but yes there was to complete the arc that he started in the fifth and sixth book i'll talk about that when we get there i haven't even read that book as of yet but yes my understanding is that he had signed a book contract and didn't deliver the last book because he died so his children eventually finished it 20 years later along with kevin j anderson as i mentioned an author i really like so i'm looking forward to the books and nachos greatly but here I was looking forward to this very much when I put it in and saw on the box the name James McAvoy. I had no idea that Professor X, the guy from Starter for 10, this actor that I like in everything so much I may see my first M. Night movie since Unbreakable. <laughs> Because he's in it, is in this film. Okay, yeah, he's in it. I don't think he was a big catch, though, in 2003. I mean, the big catch is Susan Sarandon. What, where was she? Why did they get her? Yeah, she still has some Oscar glow on her. She's six years out from winning the Oscar. Why is she here doing this? I think she got William Hurt money. I mean, I think that whatever <laughs> they were paying him last time, they were given to her. And, you know, yeah, she was still starring in movies that were in theaters. Her career was not such that she needed this. I have to believe that they paid her the right salary and that she just enjoyed being so evil. You know, she talks about when interviewed about this, just the fact that she got to play evil incarnate and that everything she does is so wicked. And I definitely think she's in her own movie. I definitely think that what <laughs> she's doing is very different from what other, other actors are doing. Yeah, she gets to hang around a lot of birds in this film. Maybe that's her thing. <laughs> a Snow White evil queen vibe yes. <laughs> coming off of her big time. It is a little bit strange to see her in this because while I know this has a huge following, I consider it kind of 
fluffy, low-budget sci-fi. I know it's medium budget, but compared to a major motion picture or something. And when I think of Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins in this period, I think high-minded, activist, everything-must-make-a-statement people. So to see her here... It feels like slumming it. Well, she did just come out with the Banger Sisters with Goldie Hawn. I don't know that everything she does is considered important, but I think that she definitely used to her celebrity as a soapbox to talk about her causes and issues when she would make public appearances, the Oscars, what have you. That is definitely her persona, but no, she's not above making trash. Let's not forget, she started out doing Rocky Horror. I think she's always had a campy side, and here she saw an opportunity to play to it again. Yeah, but I was still more excited for or McAvoy. <laughs> I was excited when I put the DVD in and saw that the special effects had made a huge jump since last week. I guess we could just say it now. Whatever we think of this, we can all agree this looks much better, right? Like, the effects, like, I don't feel like it's that bad like this is on par of some like cheap sci-fi movies of 2003 like i i feel like this is acceptable unlike last week <laughs> it kills me too because vittorio storo is one of my heroes the cinematographer of apocalypse now and last emperor and so many movies you know the way that he uses film and color and tried to use film and color last week god knows he wrote pages of him dissecting how he used color for symbolism in that dune but it didn't matter at the end of the day it looked like people trapped on a shitty soundstage <laughs> with sand around them and yeah you can turn on whatever light you want it looked cheap what happened is they went to technicians that embraced digital i think last week the movie was shot on film at least partially and here it's all digital with people that are really embracing an emerging technology that seems to be getting better on a monthly basis. I think by waiting the three years, this even having no more money, they just have a better command of how to use these techniques. And we just have better looking worms, better looking ships and cityscapes. And yeah, just a more impressive movie. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. The, the, the one thing that does not stand up to the puppet is the space guild navigator, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. Oh boy, that's bad. Yeah. I <laughs> agree that they're much better. I think certain ones are better than others. I thought the ships last time worked well here. They're much better. The sandworms look better. I mean, I still think we're in Anaconda land, but they do. Sure, they do. I mean, I mean, again, keep in mind, this is a television movie on a $20 million budget, half of what Lynch had 20 years before. Uh, it's only going to look so good. But I do think that by comparison, I mean, what they were trying for last week was to have some stylized soundstage sandbox version of Dune. And here, by going all digital, it just feels like, yeah, a low rent movie of Starship Troopers 2 or some kind of comparative here. And, and that is a step up. I hate to say it, but yes, the Oscar-winning craftsmen of last week <laughs> weren't right for that project. And the people that are here know the movie they're making. But what are they making, Arnie? Why don't you give them the plot? Good luck to you. Keep it as simple as you can, because it's a dense one. Two novels, after all. It's 12 years after the events of Dune, and Galactic Emperor Paul Atreides, also known by his Fremen name Wadib, and again played by Alec Newman, has turned Arrakis into the new galactic capital, now terraformed to have water and grow plant life, and he has led his Fremen warriors in a crusade across the universe that's lasted 12 bloody years. He is wed to Irulan, the daughter of the exiled Emperor Carino, and he loves his concubine Chaney, who becomes pregnant with Paul's twins. 
But House Carino plots to overthrow Paul's rule. The Emperor's other daughter, Wensica, who knew he had another daughter. Yeah, I got questions. They never talked about her last time. <laughs> this seems convenient. <laughs> and she's at least as old as the Emperor. So I don't know how yes. that got conceived. <laughs> but Wensica, played by Susan Sarandon, has partnered with the Spacing Guild and the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother as well as a face dancer named Seidel, to overthrow Wadib by cloning Duncan, Paul's teacher and friend who died in the first movie and who I don't remember at all. <laughs> this Duncan is programmed to kill Paul when a specific trigger is given, but other plots have taken place, including setting off a stone burner, which is basically a nuclear weapon, to kill Paul. Paul lives but is blinded, yet he can still see through his psychic visions. The same visions that have him communing with his as-yet-unborn son, Leto, played by James McAvoy. Confused yet? <laughs> mm. Cheney gives birth to twins but dies in childbirth, and Paul's sight dies with her. The face dancer orders Duncan to kill Paul, but Duncan breaks his conditioning with full memory of who he used to be. And using his newborn son's eyes, Paul kills the face dancer. But now completely blind, Paul follows the Fremen tradition of walking into the desert to be killed by worms or weather. And that's the end of night one. For night two, we jump ahead another, what, 16 years? I was thinking almost 18 years. I mean, those twins are getting ready to take over. But maybe they have a different adult age. Yeah, but it could have been some spice growth. You know, it's hard to say. It was nine in the book and they were children, so it's hard to know. Well, now Leto, along with his twin sister, Gianima, played by Jessica Brooks, are both psychics due to their father's power. But until the children come of age, the Empire is ruled by Paul's younger sister, Alia, who is driving herself mad with spice overdoses in the hopes of gaining her brother's precognition abilities. Instead, she starts to see the ghost of her grandfather, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, who she killed at the end of Dune and is again played by Ian McNeese. The Baron has Alia act in an authoritarian manner, alienating all who may threaten her rule. She also begins to cheat on her husband Duncan with her aide Javid. And those that threaten her are the old Fremen in the desert. They see the water on their planet as an abomination, and the worms that provide the galaxy's spice are dying. They are staging coups to return Arrakis to its old state. Adding to this is a hooded preacher who speaks about the fall of Muad'Dib's rule, and who many suspect may be Paul himself. Even when her mother Jessica, now played by Alice Krieg, comes to visit, Alia cannot be tamed and orders her killed. But Jessica has squired the twins to safety, and she escapes with the aid of the Fremen. Jessica goes to visit those in House Carino and forms an alliance to overthrow Alia and to find peace by having Wensica's son, Faridin, marry Paul's daughter, Ghani. But the twins have become separated in the desert, and while Ghani is reunited with Jessica, Leto is in the desert learning of the Golden Path. A spice trip shows him how to... I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> But somehow, he decides to let sandworm babies burrow under him and get, gives him super strength, speed, invulnerability, long life, and bad complexion. That was the part that broke me in the book, too. I wanted to stand. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that part. Man, what a revelation in this movie that was. <laughs> it's better than the page. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I had to read a wiki. I didn't get what the hell was going on. Leto then meets with the preacher who reveals that, yes, he is Paul, and that Leto had the strength to do what Paul could not, apparently become a worm creature. 
<laughs> Paul then returns to the capital where he's killed by the Fremen, but during Ghani and Faradin's wedding, Leto appears and confronts Alia, who then commits suicide rather than continue following the Ghost Baron's orders. <laughs> so are the date like sands to the hourglass. <laughs> Man, this is so soap opera. And then Leto runs like a roadrunner through the desert while his sister watches, <laughs> telling Faridin that she will not marry him, but he will be her concubine as credits roll. Wow. <laughs> What's the Hallmark card for that occasion? <laughs> Congratulations. I don't love you. You've been cucked by my own brother, like... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about that. I'm just going to put it out there. As someone that is going through the books and vetting the books before I get to these movies, I think I have a reverse opinion than most people that are into the Duneverse. They seem to feel like the second book is the misstep and that the third book makes the misstep worthwhile, that you have to get through the second book in order to enjoy Children of Dune. But I like Dune Messiah, and Dune Messiah is actually the basis of much of this first night. For me, what is impressive is, sure, anybody can proclaim themselves a messiah, but what do you do after the parade, right? Like, I'm always fascinated with how you keep a peace rather than win a battle. And what was interesting about Dune was it allowed this so-called messiah that we all presumed after the first film was going to do good things is actually the face of a bloody jihad that has been waged for 12 years. Yeah, I'm not sure I totally understand why this major intergalactic war is going on. I get that Muad'Dib is now in control. He's turned Arrakis into the new Empire headquarters. But yeah, they, they got, what, Fremen or just followers going out and fighting on other planets for, I don't know, are people revolting against him? Is that why they have to go and fight? Yeah, I would presume, there's not a whole lot of detail as to why, but I would presume the way that he came by the throne would be seen as somewhat of a coup, and that there were pockets of the universe that resisted this new emperor, Paul. Even though he came by it without blood, the emperor still lived, and this was... He became emperor through marriage, so I would think that would be more peaceful than I slaughtered your emperor and I rule you now. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah, I, I was expecting something like, yeah, he'd become bloodthirsty and wanted to control with an iron fist, but that doesn't seem like what's going to be going on throughout this, but for some reason there's a 12-year war going. I think the myth got bigger than him. I feel like Paul, at the start of this, feels like a failure, hates Muad'Dib because Muad'Dib is bigger than him. He doesn't command these troops anymore. Their bloodthirstiness does, that they have gotten carried away and that he can no longer... It doesn't seem to be that they're following his orders. They're following some icon that they worship that they think is him. And just to jump forward a little bit, I think there's going to be an interesting development, conflict, whatever, when you get to his son and his son's job is to destroy that myth. I don't feel like we ever see that, like, what does destroying the myth of Muad'Dib mean for the universe, though? Like, we never come back to this 12-year war, probably because we jump ahead another, I don't know, 15 years, 18 years, whatever. But I would have liked, yeah, to know, it's a cool grabber, like, okay, there's this big battle going on, they're like on a snow planet, some guy has a son who loses his sight and turns against Muad'Dib. Like, it grabbed me at the beginning, I, I just don't think it ever really plays out, like, what does it mean for this, this giant uh, G? going on yeah i was a little confused because i mentioned last show that 
in both Lynch's version and the sci-fi miniseries version, Paul seems a little bit distant, a little bit stoic. And, you know, we take him as the good guy because he is our protagonist. But I sometimes questioned, you know, especially in Lynch's version, is he really any better than the Harkonnens? And here, to see this, it threw me for a real loop because I walked away thinking... You know, he's brought peace to the galaxy and he's overthrown a corrupt emperor. So to start with this jihad, I'm like, wow, that's bold. He's the villain of this piece. He's gone power mad. And I mean, that's not an unrealistic arc for a person with absolute control. But yet he's still supposed to be our protagonist, which confuses me. So they're killing in his name and yet he can't stop them from doing it. I wish this was explored better. I'm taking it, Stuart. The book can explain the politics of this in ways this one-night episode just doesn't even have time for. No, I wouldn't say that we understand a great deal about that. I think that there are other novels that other authors have written about that explain all of that. We're just to take it at face value that the religion that started in good faith has gone sour. And I think that I see Paul very much as like a pope and that suddenly things are being done in his name by a government that in theory he is in charge of, but he doesn't actually lead those troops. He isn't there on the battlefield. They're doing it in his name. And at this point, because <laughs> because the actor plays it the way that he does, I just think of him as so ineffectual. He just won't do anything to stop it. I mean, even his own wife is just like, you could command them. He's like, no, no, no. What we understand most about Paul is that he is burdened by being omniscient, that he can see the future and feels trapped by it, that he doesn't feel like he can enact his will because he knows how things will play out. And that is given a lot of attention in the novels. It's the major conflict of both Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, is characters that look at inevitability and wonder how they can influence change, and should they? And that's what I got from this when he's communing with James McAvoy, his son, in this, like, vision of caverns and things that he is seeing the future. He knows the future and he's trying to play through all the possible scenarios. And he's realizing there's really only one path for him. I guess there's two, though, because they keep talking about the golden path. Having watched all three nights of this, I'm still not sure what that is. That's when you become a worm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll get into it in Books and Nachos, but the Children of Dune novel specifically is about evolution, evolution of characters, actual biological evolution. What the character unlocks is the origin of the worm and that what he melds with eventually makes him a new species. He no longer becomes human. And so by doing that, he can lead us towards the golden path. Um, that is the destiny. Here, I was very curious about how they were going to dramatize that. And they've chosen to have this dialogue where, yes, James McAvoy and Paul are having a game of hide-and-seek in a cavern <laughs> where the walls look like fingerprints. And we'll eventually learn that it's this lost city of Jakarutu where the Fremen got so bad they had to be annihilated. And now it's this forbidden zone. Yeah, there's a lot of, again, I, I'm always looking... <laughs> 
with Dune, like, what's the hook here? Like, what am I supposed to be getting out of all this? And I get there's a lot of different ideas, and I do feel like in Children of Dune, at least, there is this common thread of what does it mean to be able to see the future, to, to think you're destined for something? We'll see Paul struggle with that. We'll see his sister, Elia, struggle with that. We'll see his son, Leto II, <laughs> try to get rid of the future. He sees that as a curse. So, like, I see little threads there. I never feel like they really develop those themes. And so, yeah, here, like, Paul, or Muad'Dib, as he's now called, like, I don't even know what he really wants. All I know is Chaney wants to return back to the desert with him. Like, she doesn't even want to live in the palace anymore. Yeah, I think the important hook is that they established, even in the first scene, is that the old ways have been changed. By having this Muad'Dib religion, it means that old Fremen laws have been made invalid and that angers a lot of Fremen and they'll eventually create their own terrorist cell to fight back against Muad'Dib. Here in the first night, they're still on his side more or less, but they're becoming disillusioned. We have these people that have always lived in sand come to an ice planet. It's the first time they've seen, you know, water fall from the sky and we'll see this character later talk about all it did was take away his son's sight and the Fremen have a way of dealing with blindness. If you go blind, that's it. You are no longer of value to the tribe. You will walk out into the desert and die and not be a burden to us anymore. We don't waste our water, basically. It's barbaric. And so Maudib did away with that. But in doing so, and in many other ways, in the ways that they're trying to change the face of the planet, they are taking native people's culture and destroying it. And I didn't realize they were setting this up. I thought they were setting up the father character for revenge. I had no idea they were setting up something like we needed to know about their law of blindness but yeah that's really what it was yeah as they say repeatedly throughout this miniseries plots within plots i thought that father was setting something up once he got back to arrakis but the thing i do like which tells you like the fremen are going through something assuming that's who's going out and fighting this jihad like this character whose son loses his sight says oh once i saw the sea I, I forgot all about Jihad. I, I did like that. Like, once he saw, like, something else, like, oh, this this seemed, like, silly to have this little war once he saw something other than desert. But then, yeah, it's weird because they want to keep their desert ways. Yeah, and again, if this were a TV series, we could have had a whole season of this war and really understood what was gained and lost and, and followed characters where we were not only invested in that as a concept to understand, but in people's lives and how it's changed. We would actually feel for someone that had lost their culture culture here we're just kind of told that that's happened and so it's just not going to be as impacting and guess what we have to hang on to is paul which i don't feel has become any more interesting than he was last week last week he was a sullen aloof kid that you know became a messiah and now he's a an aloof messiah that doesn't feel like even though he has all the power in the universe to do anything seemingly he doesn't seem to want to do anything and so he just continues to frustrate i'm with the people that want to kill him <laughs> when i find out there's a conspiracy i'm like yeah let's do it <laughs> yeah he can't even knock up his own concubine but i guess that's because what is princess rulon doing like secretly feeding her contraceptives yeah there's a jealousy because he 
married Irulan for the emperor's seat. You know, by marrying her, he gets to claim the throne, but he told her, I'm never going to actually give you a child. Cheney is my real wife, even though officially she's a concubine. And so in retaliation of that, she tries to make Cheney barren and that since Cheney on that spice diet you joked about in the <laughs> beginning there, she's going to get pregnant whether she has to eat all the spice on Arrakis and it will eventually lead to her death. And Paul knows that. He knows as soon as he has a child that she will die. And so in some ways, he's happy to let this cat fight continue because it means he has more time at home with Cheney before she's going to get pregnant. I'm actually into these plots. You know, I'm confused about how I'm supposed to feel about Paul. But when I see him undergoing all of this stress, for lack of a better word, about everything that's going on and trying to find a way not to save himself, not even necessarily to save his family, but to save the galaxy and all of these plots against him, including one by his own wife. Is that the same actress as last time? Irulan is the same. Is Cheney different? No, Cheney's the same. Cheney is the same as well. Yes, that's what I thought. Okay. I could tell that was Cheney. I just, Irulan kind of threw me for a loop. She didn't have butterflies on her dresses this time. Yeah, (laughs) different hairdresser. But I'm getting into this story, and I want to know where things are going. And I'm going to really credit this movie in that by making two books and by taking an entire novel and making it one night, the problem I had last week, and I think we all had this, of things are too damn slow, gone. This night, books. I feel like this is a crowded night this first night. I don't know if it... Books. I don't. I don't think anything in the Dune universe books. But I feel like there's a lot going on. Like we're gonna go back to, I guess, the Emperor's planet is where he was banished after he was dethroned. And I think a reason why there might have been armed resistance to the way Atreides took over was they just kind of threw him in jail. And I think those loyal to him in that conspiracy fought on. So they are banished to a really horrible planet. Seleucus Secundus. Okay, so Seleucus Secundus isn't isn't his home planet. No, no, no. It's a much. It's where he actually trains his army. It's a horrible, hellish place that if you survive, it makes you an invincible fighter. Okay, I, I did notice the black uh, chef hats that you talked about last week. That these are the baddest of the bad troopers, and that's where you find out he has another. Like this threw me. Like there is another princess that was never mentioned. I don't know if she's mentioned in the original Dune book. But this seems like retcon, like out of nowhere, like, oh, yeah, there's another princess here. Like, she's way older, still not married. (laughs) There's five sisters, so they've actually streamlined here. But, yeah, this is the first time that another sister other than Irulan has become important. Yeah, I was completely shocked. It took me a while to figure out what Susan Sarandon's relationship to it all was. And she's talking about her father, the emperor. I'm like, but wait, I thought... Erlon was the daughter. Oh, they're, I guess they're sisters that are what, 50 years in age apart? (laughs) (laughs) You know, to help the audience, again, I know that it would be heresy to those that want to see a literal translation of book to screen, but why not just make it the Emperor? Wouldn't it just be so much easier instead of Susan Sarandon? We had the Emperor that was conniving last week, now in exile, saying, I'm going to get it back. I mean, it's like they've recast Darth Vader with Captain Phasma. Why do that? Yeah, and she has a son 
who I, I get this, like she wants him to be some great warrior. Like again, she's going to talk about plots within plots. We're going to get that Paul, get, get our empire back. I guess she's going to wait a long time because she wants her son to be trained to fight. Because I guess he's going to kill Paul eventually. But he, he's a wimp. He doesn't like the training. Yeah, I like this. I mean, this always feels very true. Those that ride their children and and try to make the greatness out of them oftentimes see that those plans blow up in their face, much to the tragedy and dismay of all those around them and it's just so clear from the very first scene even as a little boy that he just doesn't want to fight he doesn't want to train with the men that he just you know he seems soft and so Susan Sarandon's got a lot of heartache ahead of her trying to make this the ultimate badass killer like Sting or something And what confused me talking about like trying to figure out characters, there's a reverend mother. I thought this was Jessica. I thought she was like the head of the Bezer Jesuit at the end of Dune, but I guess that's not true. I guess there's a different reverend mother. It's Cher. It's who I referred to as Cher last week. She got a haircut real short like Jessica had in the last film, so it confused me. Yeah, she put Paul's hand in the box in the first one, and now she 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 sort of represents the Bene Gesserit way. Keep in mind, Jessica disobeyed them. She had a son when she was supposed to have a daughter, and she's just kind of a fringe element. So this is really the sisterhood of witches, and they don't like the fact that the Quisette Hatterach, Paul, came to being... And it's, he's not under their control. They were always supposed to control the most powerful being, and now they don't. And they always worked for the emperor, so they're here on this planet, conniving with the sister, how to get back. Their first plot, one of many, and I think a good hook, <laughs> yes. the one of the second book that I really liked, is to bring back a character you barely paid attention to, and now make him very central. Duncan Idaho was shot in the head, nobody was thinking about him, and now he is going to be the thing that undoes House Atreides. Barely paid attention to? How about didn't pay attention to at all? Who was he last movie or even the first movie? You don't remember Duncan <laughs> Idaho? He was given a mission to like check out some of the Fremen and he he was like the main fighter. He even I wondered why he was in Lynch's version because he barely plays a part in there. Yeah, in Lynch's version, he gets that really cool thing where he's wearing the shield and the bullet goes through and it takes a little while to hit him in the head. That's basically all that he does. In the one last week, yeah, he He's always hanging out with William Hurt. He's sort of the guy that sort of recruits the Fremen and Stilgar and gets them on board early on. He goes to the planet first to gain their confidence because they realize they need an army. And he was killed when the Baron had his big coup. He was not someone that got away. So... Yeah. Unfortunately, Paul had four teachers, and I think it would have been better if he had had only one or two. It's it's easy to forget, oh, one of my mentors is dead. That's less impacting than, oh, my mentor is dead. If you have five Obi-Wans, then it's just <laughs> not going to register that they come back. It's not going to mean as much. But I do like the fact that that character is going to have a payoff. Yeah, that's the key for me is in... Lynch's version, there were the three teachers who all came in at once, and I couldn't remember. Duncan sounded familiar for one of them. No, he wasn't one of those three teachers. He was someone else entirely. Okay. Yeah, I consider him a fourth teacher. He, he's like the Han Solo of this universe. Oh, wow. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> he was also, he gets a hugging scene with Kyle MacLachlan in the Lynch version. They are friends, but he is not one of the people in the room when he's training with the robot or wearing 
the shield or using the voice module. He's just one of the many that they're parading through the movie. And then I couldn't remember last time even who the doctor was who betrayed them, let alone where Duncan fit in. And now it's a different actor playing Duncan. So I was just not having any sense memory from the him. So I had to look him up. I'm like, did they really have Duncan in the previous ones? And it's not that I'm not paying attention, but there were a lot of characters and a lot of them don't matter. Yeah, no, there's a lot of characters and I feel like Duncan was in the last film in case they got to make the sequel. Like he's an integral character now. If they really want to do a head trip, if they really want to bring someone back from the dead that's going to screw up Paul... I mean, come on. The obvious choice would be his father, right? Why not get Leto? Why not actually go to the Duke? And then it's like, oh my God, how can I ever betray, you know, my father? That brings up all sorts of issues. But because this character is going to end up getting romantically involved with Paul's sister, maybe that was the choice that was made. I don't think that Frank Herbert thought about how he was going to use all his characters when he mounted Dune. When you're universe building, the more the merrier. But as someone that likes economical storytelling, I'm always judging whether you need a character or not. If this character didn't serve a purpose, or if there's another character that could do it, you combine, you consolidate, you you shape it so that it's understandable for an audience. And that has not been done in this Dune telling for television. And I'm just taken back to Lord of the Rings again, where there are so many characters by the end, and so many different actions and things and here they're going after that model and i think that works better in literature i think you can just keep track of characters better in literature because if you're looking at two-hour movies or even five-hour miniseries you just don't have enough time to explore all these minor tangents but i think there are director choices that they they could have made that would have helped i mean let's not forget skin tone i mean all these people are white they all came from the czech republic and they all kind of look the same and sound the same and so after a while it really is confusing who's who but if you had played more with like different races different colored hair costuming if you had used visual cues to make characters stand apart i don't think we would be struggling with who was duncan idaho we could have said oh he was the one in the the purple robe or something but they've got a very bland actor and he's just not good enough to make himself stand out and i do feel like that is my problem in general with most of the performances here is that nobody's bringing personality or character or quirks the things that lynch excels at that everyone is going to be weird in some way here everyone is going to do everything they can to make you ignore them yeah that's why people like the baron or susan sarandon stand out because they're just going full camp which is so different than the rest of this stoic cast i i was actually having to make like weird connections to remember who characters were like noticing people's nostrils and like how they flared or something <laughs> because like to try to tell who was who and remember people like that is what i was doing throughout this what i didn't have to come up with some weird mnemonic device for was the spacing guild navigator like they've changed the design like he's in on this plot he's a sea monkey now like is this supposed to be different than that bat character or is this supposed to be the same guy <laughs> or the same race i think it's the same guy right just different special effects team correct yes and uh, i want to say you know when we covered the lynch dune i said oh this was his conception it was not in the original novel but when i read dune messiah the second novel it became apparent that he was just reading ahead, that Lynch <laughs> knew that he was supposed to be making a series, and he brought a character from a future book into his first book. But they are basically humans that have been morphed by Spice 
into, yeah, sea creature kind of things in a tank. They swim in spice is how they're constantly described. And so, yeah, it just makes me think of them as being somewhat amphibious. But their plot, I guess they were able to get the body, or they'll tell Paul they got the body of Duncan, and they did some science stuff to bring him back to life. But did they clone him? Like they got a DNA swab and just grew him in a jar? Or did they resurrect his body? My belief is they didn't have really the term for cloning, or he didn't want to use a scientific term from Earth. But they said they found chunks. And then they grew from chunks a new body. So to me, that's cloning. It's pretty much his body. The chunks I think they're referring to are what might have gotten blown away in his head. I mean, they pieced it together. What they're claiming, and I want to be, you know, I wish I could not be specific because I want to just kind of get through this and not not obsess <laughs> on details. But it isn't the Spacing Guild that did this. It's the Talaxu. It's the Face Dancer. Yeah, it's the Face Dancer. Yeah. Skytol is really the one that did it. That, that I didn't know that was like a different race or whatever. They're all white people. <laughs> I Again, it is uh, for someone whose face is literally supposed to morph and dance and change. They got the most bland, looks like everyone else extra that's supposed to be captivating. And it's, it is a frustration of this series that I don't feel like they have very many striking faces. And so you just can't tell people apart. But no, there is this other creature we've never met before who took this body. They use spice for the dark arts. They do kinds of experiments that are like Goebbels, you know, it's like the Nazi stuff, you know, just dark, ugly, unethical science. And one thing they do is bring the dead back, but they've never claimed to bring back their soul. They just reanimate the body. And so the question is, as Paul receives his old friend, is does he accept him as a new helpful person from his enemies? Or does he believe that he can actually bring back his old friend, that memories do eventually come back to this guy? And will he be the old friend that we never got to know in the first book? Yeah, they call him like everyone seems suspicious of him once he's presented to Paul. What do they call him? A golem? A gula. I'm sorry, Agola. Agola. I thought they were referencing the the Jewish myth of the the clay creature that you put a symbol in its head and it comes alive. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, you know, with Frank Herbert doing his own vernacular twist on it, he's got to always change the name a little bit. But I I think you're right. That is the myth that they're exploiting. I wasn't sure, but yeah, I heard Gola and I'm like, okay, zombie, resurrected being, reanimated corpse, clone, whatever you want to call it. It said to me, person without a soul. They didn't really trust him and everybody's wanting Duncan killed. I'm thinking they should kill the bad CGI spacer instead. But Paul's like, oh, we're going to accept this gift because he knows everything that's going to play out. He knows Duncan is not going to betray him, but in fact will betray his training. Right? I mean, that's what I get. I think so. You know, it, it's very difficult to know... Sometimes the omniscient know everything and sometimes their vision is clouded and there's a lot of dialogue about why that is. Frank Herbert goes into some detail about the fact that Paul, while omniscient, there are certain blind spots that he has because he's surrounded by so much mysticism and paganism. And one thing that is not in this version that I would have loved to have seen is the commercialization of Muad'Dib. That there are all these pilgrims coming in and they're all selling tarot and they're all making their own prophecies and they're begatting their own 
own prophets and what have you. And because everyone is foreseeing a different future, it makes it hard for Paul to see the actual golden path future. And I think he needed that. I think he needed to understand that he was surrounded by false soothsayers and, and all of that mysticism. There is a scene later on where the preacher, who, come on, we all know it's Paul, he does that Jesus overthrowing the tables and the money changer tables in the temple scene. That that makes more sense now that why he does that later on, because yeah, okay, they're perverting the religion or perverting the prophet. I got that a little bit, but now it's starting to click. Yeah, exactly. And we'll see the Bene Gesserit mother, the Reverend Mother, playing with a tarot deck. There, there was a lot of that in the novel. And here, I just think it's a budgetary reason. They don't, they don't have time to explore all that background characters. And so, basically, we're just supposed to think that, yes, as you point out, Arnie, Paul knows how it's all going to play out. So he's not going to worry about the fact that his enemies are planning a sleeper cell right next to him. But I do think it's a good tension for the novel. It's the thing I cared most about when I was reading it, but because these actors are bland, I don't feel like it has the dramatic stakes that it should. Yeah, I'm caught up in the what, but I'm not feeling a whole lot of pressure. You know, with this many plots against him and everything, certain movies that have things like this, one that comes to mind is just like The Firm, where everyone's conspiring against Tom Cruise. I actually get this like claustrophobic feeling while watching it, thinking there's no way out. Here, I don't really feel much of anything ever. I'm just watching and wondering, where is this going? What is going on? And when they get to hit the assassination attempts where he has to go into town to pick up a little person and then they literally <laughs> set off a nuclear bomb to kill him, I'm like, wait, I thought the plot was to have Duncan do it. So why are they nuking? And But it's the Fremen who nuke, right? And it's house Karina that is using Duncan? That's correct. There are multiple enemies, and it would be helpful to think that only one person was coming after Paul. But yes, it is both the people that he is leading that are feeling betrayed and want to kill him, and it is also the displaced royal family who wants to come back from the horrible planet and take the throne again. And yes, the royal family has the Duncan plot, and the Fremen have the nuke plot. You, you know who I thought was going to be the badass to save the day? And it may be my favorite scene because it, it's pretty awful. Is when we get all <laughs> reintroduced. And oh my god, it reminded me of something from the from Electra or from that Ben <laughs> Affleck Daredevil film. Like she's like fighting these razor blades, and like she is so like excited that she fought off eleven like flying razor blades. Like she strips down and like Paul walks in and like checks her out and then covers her up. One of the the first of many like incestual nods throughout this miniseries. But like I'm like, okay, these people are all kind of boring, but if Alia's going to be just crazy, like, warrior psychic or whatever, I could probably get into this. This was around the time that yoga was coming back and everyone had <laughs> different permutations of their, like, those stripper, like, learn how to be on the pole while you do yoga and all that. Like, I'm not sure. This is some kind of, yeah, Electra combat yoga that she's got here, where the CGI technicians are doing all they can to animate this, the throwing stars so they don't hit her. as she's. It's not that she's avoiding them. It's that they're doing their best to draw them around <laughs> her as she's 
flipping and throwing hatchets and what have you. It's over the top ridiculous. And I just want to put it out there. I never feel like sci-fi television shows do well when they try to emulate big screen action. Movies always do the action stuff much better than what they can do on the small screen. So when they try here in these little moments, it's just laughable. Yeah, it was pretty sad. That was one moment where the CGI really failed in my mind. But so did the flips. I'm like, that is so not the actress. <laughs> yeah, and this is not the character we saw last time. Alia, creepy girl, loved her in the Lynch version, was okay with the child they got last week. Here she's become a sexy Greek model who, yeah, carries none of the otherworldliness that we associate with Alia. We're supposed to think that she is just as strange, uh, pre-born, just like Paul. But honestly, the way it plays is that she just seems like a brat. No, I, I was sad that she seems to have lost her strangeness as she's grown up. Like, yeah, she is not that creepy kid anymore. She wasn't creepy in the miniseries, though. I really loved the creepiness of her in Dune. I didn't really get the character's place because it was so chopped up. But, man, that child is quite an image with the voice and everything. And so I'm seeing that girl growing up here more than I'm seeing the little girl we saw last week. Yeah, I mean, she's weird enough to date a zombie. I'll give her that. That's pretty <laughs> weird that she would have this relationship with Duncan while everyone else is like, he may be an assassin here to kill you and undo the entire family. And she's like, you know what? You're kind of hot. And I'm <laughs> I'm just kind of coked up on spice. So like she ends up marrying him at some point. I'm not exactly sure where in the story, but at some point she gets married to the Gola. So I think it's between the two books in that time span. Here, they're just having a lusty affair. Yeah, but that weird choice. Again, having three nights to do stuff, and I feel like they still leave stuff out, or I don't know, maybe it's plots that never play out in the book. Like, one of the plots within plots to somehow get back at Muad'Dib, like, going back to Susan Sarandon, like, they're going to steal a worm. Does anything ever come of that? There's a whole scene where they're kidnapping a worm off of Arrakis. I don't think they ever come back to that or tell us what the point of that was. Best scene in the movie, and I'm convinced it was so expensive they couldn't bear to cut it, <laughs> even though there is absolutely no point for it. So in the book, it doesn't go anywhere either? It hasn't yet. I've only read the first okay. three novels, so... You got 16 more to go. If there are worms populating on other planets, that may be something for a few... It may be set up. I don't think it is from just the wikiing I did because I had to know what book four was after book three. But I'll say that I felt so bad for the worm in this. The way he's trapped by the water and then he lets out the mournful whale. I never thought I could feel pity for this worm as he's scooped up, but I, I do. Yeah, no, it's a cool scene. I like that they have this scene, but I am confused because these worms, I swear this is where they got the idea for Tremors from. Oh yeah, they're total graboids. I mean, can't they dig like underneath the sand, yet they have like an 18-inch trench of water and it can't escape like i don't really understand why they're so afraid of water when they could just dig underneath it and go ah, you guys i mean yeah i guess they could go really deep but you just go with it that's what they had the money to do <laughs> to trap it this is completely contrived for this this mini series is not in the book in this way there's no description for it in the book it's just mentioned that a worm was taken away here they had to visualize it and i do like the idea that it's stressing in a visual way 
that by the greening of the planet, you're actually killing the thing that creates the spice. That it's the anathema of their whole culture is, is water. So that the more plants that are on the surface, the harder it is for the worms to do their job. And, you know, their death creates water. You know, that's the water of life. And so the cycle really is that what Alia and Paul are hoping to do to transform Arrakis ultimately would end spice and thus end everything about the culture. I mean, everyone uses spice from the spacing guild that moves the ships to the Bene Gesserit that controls the bloodlines to, yeah, this Muad'Dib. Everyone needs it for their visions. Everyone needs it to do what they do. So they could ultimately render everyone powerless by this ecology. I think it's strange that greening and, and so, you know, something that we always associate with fighting corporations and big business and all, it is the big business here. It is the big bad. Yeah, I took it almost as a ecological statement, you know, altering the earth for your own needs is bad, even whatever you're altering it from. Yeah, th this is like the opposite of global warming, I guess. But Muad'Dib mm -hmm. did threaten this in the last TV miniseries, like, oh, I'll just make this a water planet and destroy all the spice if I don't get my way when he kind of pouted at the end there. But I, I feel like... Okay, we've got all these characters, like the final plot within a plot in this first night is now that Paul is blinded from that nuclear explosion that went off, and he's had his kids now, he's had twins, Chaney's given birth, I do love this birth scene, like, you could tell this director, this writer, they love the baptism scene at the end of The Godfather, because they, they got that music going as she's giving birth, they got, you know, the sea monkey spacing guild guy getting assassinated they have all this stuff going on I, I feel like they're really going for it here but he's got his twins and now that face dancer is gonna threaten them i gotta say you mentioned the score this score rang some bells when i heard it no pun intended there but i'd heard this before so i did have to look it up this is like some really popular music that they use for trailers of all kinds of movies so I definitely heard this anthem before. It was, it's possibly the best thing about the entire miniseries is the score brought in. I don't feel it always fits. Sometimes there's some Middle Eastern strings and all that sort of do fit the vibe, but sometimes, yeah, it feels like soaring horns for a different kind of movie. I don't feel like this is a movie where we feel swelling in our heart and are rooting for heroes. I think this is a conspiratorial, as you say, godfather kind of plot where complicated characters are doing nefarious, sometimes heinous things. And so to, to hear trumpets, that's not usually what I'm feeling. <laughs> I'm not usually feeling like, oh yeah, come on, rock. This is going to be great. Yeah, it feels like Paul has lost his way. Even though he's lost his vision and claims that he's going to follow this golden path, he's lost control. And yeah, by the end of this night, yeah, they've gotten the conspirators, but it, it doesn't feel like I'm happy about that. I mean, they slit the throat of the Reverend Mother. They smash the spice tank of the Navigator. And this face dancer thinks he's got Paul at a disadvantage by saying, yeah, your wife's dead. If you want her to come back to life like we did with Duncan, I can do that for you. But it means you have to give me total control of the spice. And he has to make a Sophie's choice there, which would he rather have personal satisfaction with his wife or accept the golden path future in which, yeah, he's going to let her be dead and not let this enemy have spice production. Is that what was going on there? Because I wondered why Paul just 
chose to not have his wife brought back. I did think that the face dancer was a little foolish of, I can move faster than anyone. Yeah, Paul's Muad'Dib. Have you seen his weirding way? I knew that was going to come up. I liked that his vision. I mean, when he went blind, I just watched Daredevil season two on Netflix. And so I went to Daredevil. He's like, he's blind, but he can still see. He's got like Daredevil sense. But it was really Chaney giving him that power somehow. When she died, he was blind. I like that he had to use the baby's eye, the camera work to show the point of view of the baby. And then he's really blind for good. It was confusing to me, though, why it all happened. Yeah, I don't know that I have a real good answer for you. I mean, I think it's just mythic. The idea of, you know, the the all-seeing man. I mean, the blind soothsayer is as old as, you know, Greek tragedy. I mean, that is a stereotype at this point, that someone that cannot literally see but can see all is a cliche. And so that is what Paul has become. And the fact that he's being somewhat punished, I think, for creating a religion that has done so much damage, he is going to do what the old Fremen way is to do. He's going to wander into the desert and he's going to kill himself. He's going to allow himself to disappear. And Paul that character is dead. His his body will come back. There is an evolution in him, but I think what comes back is somewhat different. Yeah, I wasn't sure if he died or not. I mean, when the worm crashes down on him, it looks pretty fatal. And yet, part of me thought, well, he's Muad'Dib. If anybody can take care of this, he can. And so I wasn't entirely sure. They didn't show a body. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I think that's exactly how they leave the book. And when you're reading a story and you hear about a preacher that kind of looks like Paul, you're like, well, maybe it is and maybe it's not. However, in a movie, when you see it's being played by the same actor... It is! Come on! <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, unfortunately, by being visual in that way, some of the surprise that they're building towards... I mean, I didn't know whether Paul was dead for much of the story arc but here when we get to night two and we see that a blind man has returned from the desert to preach doom and gloom and he looks just like the actor before and he's blind just like paul went through yeah i feel like that sense of mystery there's still a question about what does he ultimately want his sister is now in charge and she kind of keeps him alive she could have him executed god knows she's paranoid enough but she <laughs> keeps him alive because i think she thinks that he is her brother and i think she's been told that he's harmless that even though he's talking about bringing down her empire he can do nothing really about it yeah i laugh every time they're like it might be paul i'm like guys it is come on get over <laughs> it but okay Aliyah, she's upset because she, I guess she could see the future and now she can't. So she's just like tripping on spice all the time. She can't see f the future as far as she wants to. And so she's taking more and more spice to extend that. And what it does, the book goes into this in much greater detail. I remember reading it and just feeling like, how are they ever going to show it? And the answer is they can't. They don't. <laughs> but she's able to stretch back through all her ancestors and commune with them. And as it was revealed in the end of Dune, one of her relatives is the Baron Harkonnen. Yeah, her grandfather. That is why he takes possession of her, is that she literally goes seeking answers from her from her biological cells. It's very Jungian. And there he is waiting to take control of her mind. I think, honestly, Frank Herbert just saw The Exorcist and said, <laughs> how can I do a sci-fi spin on this? This threw me for a hell of a loop because I remembered briefly that Paul was 
the grandson of Harkonnen, or actually that Paul's mother was an illegitimate child of Harkonnen. And because it was such a little girl, I never really connected Alia with Baron Harkonnen. So this, he, she calls him grandfather. It took me a moment to process. I never thought this was a real spirit. I thought she was insane. And this was like a multiple personality disorder thing. That's all I could read it as. I mean, the way I took it is that, yeah, she couldn't see forward in the future, but she could still see back. I got this feeling that she could kind of travel with her mind. And so because she could go backwards, she could tap into, like you said, Stuart, those ancestors and the Baron being the strongest personality and wanting to control all this was somehow able to bridge that gap. And his personality is the one that stuck out the most and overtakes her. I was happy to see the actor back, though. I never expected Baron Harkonnen to show up again, but... He was one of my favorite performers of the first miniseries, so to see him back and glowing red like an evil Jedi, I'm like, I'm going to go with this quite well, and he's just as lecherous and nasty and floaty as ever. Yeah, he's like, go have sex with people, because I get a joy out of it. Yeah, no, he. I think she. he's the reason she has that extramarital affair, that there's some handsome priest that she starts banging because, well, it fits the type of the Baron. Yeah, that's how I took it, too, and that's, that is strange, and I love it. I wish I did love it, but it was strange in the book, and, and I'll just put it out there. I didn't really like Children of Dune as a novel that much. I found a lot of it frustrating. I'll put it at that. Both in the way that things were described and ultimately the destinies of all these evolving characters. I felt like Frank Herbert was really challenging the way that we were thinking about all his characters and that the Messiah was now the pariah who was railing against his own religion and Alia who was supposed to be leading this ecological revolution has now become a spice hag that's, you know, like just out of her mind and being controlled by the enemy. It's, it's certainly challenging, but it does leave you adrift. Who am I rooting for? What do I care about? I think it all hinges on how we feel about the grandkids. And because one of them is James McAvoy, I am so happy with these grandkids. I mean, you mentioned Han Solo, Jacob, but I'm definitely getting, well, maybe more of an Anakin Skywalker kind of vibe <laughs> off of Leto II. And that makes you happy. Hey, I still like the prequels. So when they introduce him and he's flying right in front of those worms and then almost gets eaten by the worm's mouth, the cockiness, the skill, the fact that they drop, he never had a flying lesson. He just knows how to fly genetically. I like this kid's power and I like his twin sister she doesn't do much but i like they got two actors with great chemistry the way they finish each other's sentences and everything you get that they're communicating psychically as well as verbally it works for me yeah i'll, I'll give them this they got more personality than most of this cast and those are the people i tend to remember in this tv series so james mcavoy even if i didn't know who he was yeah i get that cockiness i i like these twins because again they stand apart from this sea of blandness see but i always thought they were threatening I mean, you could say you like them, but I actually found the fact that they were hard to control and seemed to have a secret language and nobody understood why they were laughing or how they could do the things that they were doing. To me, that didn't mean that they were cool or in sync with each other. It meant that they were up to something bad. And the fact that Paul only had a vision of his son and all of a sudden he's like, my wife had twins. I thought that was a plot. I thought someone had planted a child that was not his into the family. And so for much of that book, 
I was just like, who's this Ghani? I don't like this Ghani. It's going to be somebody's kid, Ghani. And it turns out that it was just a twin, but it was very confusing the way they did it. Yeah, it's a little bit sexist. Ghani's going to stand around and get married while Leto gets to become a worm superhero, I guess. But what what gets me to like Leto especially is he says a good ruler should be sensitive to those he serves, not godlike. I like that he's like has the opposite mission of his father. Paul was there to become Muad'Dib and this prophet and this icon that people would use to wage jihad and leto is against all that he wants to destroy that image i get that's one of the reasons i like him and go okay maybe this is a hook a plot a storyline that i could get into with this universe that i've been rather cold to yeah i mean frank herbert i feel like enough time had passed that he was looking at generations if if the first one came out of the eisenhower idealism that this was now hippie generation going into the 70s and how much could we trust them? I think that he was trying to remain hopeful, but also saw that they did not care about the things that his generation did and what did that ultimately mean for the planet. We're in uncertain hands that they could inherit the rule. But here's one thing that is clear. We know that Alia is not a stable ruler. We know pretty early on she should not be in a position of power. And in fact, I don't think I ever have a sympathetic moment for this character in any of the three nights. Even though she's afflicted by this baron, the man she killed is going to basically drive her to suicide. You would think I would have some feeling for that, but I I don't. I just see her as really the worst villain of all the villains presented. I'll agree with that. I feel a little bad for her when she's going on the crazy spice things because she just doesn't feel adequate to replace her brother in rule. But as soon as she starts going evil, yeah, she is the most arch of all the villains we've seen and that's a lot when we're comparing her to the baron another thing that they've done i think wisely that when i was reading the novel made me very uneasy and here if it's there it's done in subtext these kids were bred i guess like the egyptians the idea was that they were eventually going to mate with each other there was a some talk by the Bene Gesserit of having ghani and leto procreate together that no outside heir would be right for their genetic bloodline and so in order to present another super being you had to have brother sleep with sister that's a bit icky and i think it was wise that they left it out i don't think they left it out especially when you get to the end where ghani's like my brother runs and when he needs to rest he puts his head in my lap and (laughs) husband you will be my concubine okay you heard that too yeah yeah she's gonna her brother and never the prince every time they were going near that i was very uncomfortable and i just thought come on this is tv guys we're this is not flowers in the attic let's get this (laughs) let's get this out of here hey that was a tv movie (laughs) yeah it it was boy i'll tell you but i didn't get that i mean i heard the rest his head in my lap line i just took it as they were really close but not like that close she's telling her husband at the end that you are my concubine well who's the husband then who's the lover it's the guy she was just talking about her brother no she said she will love him but her brother will never know love so i took her brother as like on the celibist priest worm path and she gets to know love But for some reason, because her father couldn't marry her mother, she's just on principle never marrying. 
Yeah, let's talk about his path. I, I agree. It's time to talk about the golden <laughs> path that Children of Dune is a very long book. It's actually longer than the original. And it's not until the last 50 pages that we find out that he's destined to change his skin. And that was a huge surprise and a twist that did not work for me at all. He literally becomes a different creature. He leaves behind his humanity to mate with, well, they call them sand trout. But Frank Herbert gives a lot of lip service to the fact that they are the species that the worms evolved out of. So basically, he's dug all the way back into the worm's genetic line and fused it with his flesh. The way that it read on the page was that he stuck a bunch of fish on him and was running around (laughs) hopping and running. It just felt ridiculous. Here, it feels more like, hey, I got a cool body art tattoo and I have superpowers. Yeah, he finds that cave that we kept seeing visions of. Paul had visions of it and then Leto had visions of it. He finds that cave. Jackarutu. Jackarutu, yes, another weird word we have to say. And I I felt like he just found some baby worms. I I didn't get that that was supposed to be going back in time. I just, I don't know what happened, something magical, because people are on spice and psychic and whatever. But yeah, he combines with those worms. You see them, like, crawl in his hand, and then he starts growing scales. All right, I'll be real fast as I can. When the worms (laughs) were first introduced into Arrakis, the planet was a water planet. They were a water species. This is millions of years before. And they are full of water. And what they have evolved into is a species that has no water. So that when he puts them on his hand like a glove, which is a game that children do on Arrakis, it's anyone can do it. They just kind of stick to you. That's kind of what the sand trout do. They're so watery that it makes worms nervous. And so he learns that if he waves a sand trout at one of the worms, he can command it and he doesn't need his usual you know, grappling gear to mount a worm. Basically, by putting on a sand trout suit, he can now command the worms in a super powerful way. So that is what happens in the last 50 pages of that novel, (laughs) which was just very dissatisfying. I was like, huh? I can't visualize that. I can't understand that. This seems like a dumb fix-all for what they were building up towards. Yeah, spoiler alert, I had to jump and read the wiki on book four, and it's like, thousands of years later and Leto is a half worm half human thing meaning he's a worm with human head and arms and i'm like wow what i'm I'm remembering layer of the white (laughs) worm a little bit and like i was stunned it went that way i wish that this mini series set it up and explained it a little more. They talk a lot about the golden path. They never really tell us that when he sticks his hand in and pulls out some worms, he's morphing into a new being. And then when he starts running like Cal from Smallville, I'm really lost. But that's good, Arnie, because the answers are bad. We don't want it to be like the book, (laughs) because if it were, you would be like, no, you can't do that. That's a betrayal of the character. Here, the way it comes across to me is these twins went out into the desert because their sister was getting a little too crazy on the spice. They were hunted by these lions in a semi-unconvincing scene, got separated. He found the lost city. And then, yeah, something mystical happened to him. You don't really need to understand what it is. The less you know, the better. And now he can come back as a superhero. And I think that's all you really need to understand. To know the science behind it is to be disappointed. Yeah, I never took it as he was some other creature that 
that the worms were afraid of. Uh, my reading was because this was about Arrakis it changing and the worms not liking that change. Like he was trying to bring the worms back, so he's turning into a worm and I guess taking on their powers. Like they could, I don't know, wiggle through the sand really fast so he could run. I don't <laughs> know what's going on. I just thought run like the trout. Again, I want to remind you they're called sand trout. So I'm picturing fish when I'm reading this. I was happy to see they looked like worms. <laughs> and I don't necessarily want the science of it. I want the spirituality of it. I am fine if you say because he is the son of Muad'Dib, he is going to merge with the worms. I just needed a little bit less cryptic doublespeak and a little bit more why is this happening? It just seems to be happening because we're on the last night of the miniseries and so much else is going on. I mean, they're, is there, they're talking about how they tried to raise the worms elsewhere, but it didn't work. I guess that's the resolution to the worm stealing scene from night one. They're talking about how the spice is running out. The worms are going to die no matter what they do. The planet's too far gone. I think there's a lot happening here that is intriguing me, but it's so much that I don't know that any of it's really satisfying. Well, that's because Leto is the character that's interesting to us. Then they got all the other characters that are just left over from the series that they have to invent plots for. And I feel like anytime you're bringing up those old characters... Sometimes they're okay as a performance, but all the time I feel like, who really cares? Who cares that Paul's mother comes back from Caladan, decides to go teach her Bene Gesserit ways to the son of Susan Sarandon, and then gets him engaged to Ghani? I mean, that is a plot nobody cares about. Did you think they were going to sleep together? Because I, I really did. They're like, at one point, Susan Sarandon's talking about the seduction of the Bene Gesserit, and then there's like this bedroom scene with him and Susan Sarandon. I'm like, that's a little May, September. Oh, no, it's Cougar Town all over. Yeah, he, he's on planet Cougar and loving it. <laughs> yeah, this prince, I mean, you get Faradin. I guess the whole reason he was introduced as being this wimp is because, yeah, we're going to get to the wedding of him and Ghani while Leto's out running around with the worms and like his whole twist is because he's a wimp because he's not going to fight is he's just going to rat out his mom and go oh look she's got all these plans to go against you guys look I don't need this to be Star Wars but this is just all talking and standing around and posturing I, I want something to happen I just I'm not, I'm not taken in by this story with the way it's being told and Frank Herbert writes that way a lot of his stuff is just thick with characters pontificating and that he gets lost in the ideas of things not a lot happens in Children of Dune, even though it's nearly 500 pages long. It's just him mulling over these concepts and allowing his characters to think aloud about them. So you have, yeah, a novel that can be condensed down to two nights. But the, what you really have to ask yourself is, are the supporting plots that compelling? Another plot that's going on here that feels like it should be its own movie is the break between Fremen and Atreides. And that gets to the boiling point of which even Stilgar, who was the right-hand man to Paul, is going to mount all of these people to turn against Alia. And they're riding in on worms saying, aye, and we're ready to kill. They don't even get that battle. No, they don't. We never even get that movie. <laughs> it's like a build-up to a tension, a bomb that doesn't go off. 
You know, if you the rule is if you introduce the gun in Act 1, it's got to go off in Act 3. Here I feel like very little goes off at the climax of this movie and that a lot of characters have just been brought back for goodwill and to fill up time. I do love Stilgar because he seems like all he does in this TV series, Children of Dune, is go, let me take their water. <laughs> he just wants to take everyone's water. <laughs> it's true. That is like hailing off frequencies. You know, every like supporting Star Trek character has their one line. He is water obsessed. But like what happens with Duncan Idaho? I don't even remember what happens. Like his wife's going to commit suicide. He gets cuckolded because his wife is cheating on him and he hears it. And I feel really bad for the guy. But then to force a Fremen war, he goes and kills the priest that was sleeping with his wife. And in doing so, forces Stilgar to kill him due to tradition, thus <laughs> precipitating a war. Oh, so he dies again. That's right. Yeah, I love it. He's like, how dare you bring murder into our siege? So he murders him. I'm like, this seems, everyone seems to be doing things that are against their character. What I'm struggling with, not only are, are there different actors playing some of these parts from last week, but they are behaving in ways entirely different from what I've been accustomed to. And I don't think it's in the spirit of the character. I know Frank Herbert wanted to evolve our concepts of how we thought about them, but he's pushed it too far. I feel like I find very little about the characters, many of which I liked in the novel, very relatable at this point in the story. They just seem like a lot of distraction. And it doesn't help that we have uncharismatic actors giving bad line readings to it all. I mean, Irulan, who needs her anymore? She's all so happy to have raised these kids. And I mean, honestly, do we need any scene? She's the teacher, right? With the short hair now. Yeah, that's the princess. Yeah, she's the sister of Susan Sarandon that's always just talking about how she's done a good job because she still loves Paul, even though he never gave her a kid. Yeah, there's so many scenes of them in, like, that garden, just, like, talking and, like, ugh. Yeah, here's the thing that's really important to stress. Dune is not an action story. It is not full of the kinds of things that we think of with space fantasy like Star Wars. So I was really curious to see how they were going to dramatize that. And the answer is they're not. <laughs> they're going to have characters stand around in these places and pontificate. And I think the way to have done it was to rework this material, to take the idea that these are the character arcs and then write the story that better serves them. Because we're told a lot of things, but we don't feel a lot of things. And I don't have any compassion for any of the characters that are going back and forth while I wait for Leto to achieve his destiny, which comes, I guess, yeah, when he sticks his hand in the fish or the worm or whatever you want to call it and comes racing back for this wedding. I am desert power. Yeah, it felt a little anticlimactic to me that it got to the wedding because Paul is killed on the steps during the betrothal. And that's where Susan Sarandon gets her comeuppance when Faradin outs all of her plots to Alia, and that felt to me like, okay, here's the climax of the film. Here's the big thing. No, we're now going to just, like, have a dissolve to wedding dresses, and... That wedding dress, too. Vera Wang up top, <laughs> mom jeans on the bottom. What is that? Yeah, what was with that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the best part is when, when Leto shows up, he roars like a worm, like that, man. I think it's a lion. I want more stuff like that. I don't know why he's roaring, but, you know, God bless James McAvoy. 
I thought, again, I thought he was mimicking the sandworms. Yeah, I think it's a worm roar. He says that he's the lion of Atreides, so I've never seen a lion on Caladan, but hey. Are you sure it's the lion? I thought he said the line, like the bloodline. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Oh, well, no, I'm not sure. But, uh, we're all confused. I think we can all agree at this point. It's very strange to see what's going on here. And James McAvoy, early in his career, we you keep citing him as, you know, the future Professor X, but he hadn't done any of the movies you're talking about yet he had done a a little bit of british television but yeah he's just he's allowing his natural charisma to come through and why not with all of these dull people here use your power and just blow them away blow this alia chick (laughs) off the screen who is just so awful it's become unbearable all her barren out scenes at this point i can't stand her you know what he'd done around this time though that i didn't even realize and watching this made me reevaluate that movie or at least a certain performance in it was not long after this he'd do the lion the witch and the wardrobe and he looks very similar he kind of matured after those movies but yeah we're getting about that presence here and i do think he has a natural screen presence that he carries to this day unless Shyamalan f***s it up he seems to have fun in, in many of his roles even when he's angsty i think he always finds a way to smile and that's really a disarming quality about him is that he's he just has a play side to him that kind of seeps through here and again i wish this series had it it's so self-serious there's so many things with portent and doom and destiny and how burdensome it is how nice it is that we have a character with magic powers that's having fun and kicking ass and even if it's a stupid wedding fight i'm liking that and then he runs in circles in the desert for reasons He's looking for the golden path still, I think. Neo, you know, keep in mind, I think that the Matrix has been an influence on this entire series, that they got the weirding way effects was their pathetic attempt to try and emulate bullet time and here with you know some of the things that neo had done in the second movie with the some of the looney tunes fights with agent smith where there was like hundreds of them coming at him i think this was their attempt to show his neo power and that he had really evolved at this point uh, you know the special effects had evolved i'll give him that but they're still not that great they really don't need to show him off in this way well with that jacob stewart do you recommend Or would you abort the children of Dune? Jacob. Well, they didn't come from my body, so that's not my choice, whether they're aborted. But (laughs) I'll say this. I'll say this up front is I enjoyed this one slightly more than the last television series. Like, I still don't want a third one to watch. But like this one, I, I think there's more slightly more character to this one and that's probably because of james mcavoy and and the actress playing his sister like they seem fun like they seem to be enjoying it and they seem to have high spirits amongst all this droning on about whatever and look that might work for a book we've talked about adaptations before like that might work for a book to be very philosophical but for a visual medium you got to do something with that adaptation i still feel like the things that hurt Dune are hurting children of Dune. Like, there's a lot of, yeah, pontificating. And I just, I, here's my problem. Like, like, with this whole series, what's the crux of this? Like, what is the hook? Arnie, you said you struggled with Eraserhead, but not necessarily something like Twin Peaks because you get the hook. You know, who killed Laura Palmer? I'm looking for that in Dune. I'm looking for it again here in Children of Dune. I don't know. Overthrowing false prophets, maybe? I don't know. There, there's there's a lot of ideas, and I don't feel like they ever centralize around one 
strongly enough to just give me a hook, to give me a crux of why I should watch this. I I don't have a reason to. I mean, if you, again, like the books and you want a literal translation of people standing around saying lines that they said in the book, then, yeah, you probably like this. But it doesn't work for me. I don't think it's going to work for anyone that didn't like that television series, Dune, or hasn't read the book. So I'm going to another not recommend for Children of Dune. Stuart. Yeah, you know, the one thing that the movie had last week on Lynch was the fact that it had more time to be coherent. And I don't even think it has that moral high ground this time. I feel like the story gets lost in a lot of convolutions and that the adaptation, God bless them. I don't think Children of Dune is a very good book, so I pity anyone that would have to adapt it into two nights. But they struggle to make meaning for all of these characters. As you say, Jacob, you end up watching a story in which it's fine, I understand basics, but why should I care? They never tell you why you should care. And unless you love the character of Leto and Paul, then I just don't think that there's an entry there. Lynch knew one thing about the novel. It may have been convoluted. You may not have understood the literal plot, but you always followed the characters because they were so quirky and compelling. And there was an atmosphere that made you want to ask questions knowing you'll never get answers. Here, I don't want anymore. This is a boring world. And it is that spicy flavor that sci-fi movies always seem to have. There's just that this distaste that they put into everything to make all their sci-fi dry, dispassionate, just uninvolving. I mean, I like the Duneverse. I like the first two Frank Herbert novels. And so I should be on board with at least half of this series. But I, it is really the wrong choice, I think, to make it such a low-budget TV movie spectacle. The only way to do it is to have big screen ambitions, but to have the time, maybe TV now, HBO, it could maybe do this justice. But no, as it currently stands, I'm going to say that, yeah, even if you like the books, even if you thought that a novel Children of Dune was great, this is going to disappoint you. There's just too many compromises made technically and through the plot. Well, I'm a little bit more on the fence than you two. I had to end up doing math on this recommendation. Did you wiggle your fingers around as you do it? James McAvoy and a score. (laughs) (laughs) Can James pull it through for you? How much does Arnie like James McAvoy? Let's find out. (laughs) I'm looking at it as three nights. And that first night is Dune Messiah. And I thought that was a really involving night. It brought me in. I was intrigued. It moved quickly. I didn't follow all of it. And that is a problem. It's There's so much going on. I feel like I have to read the book or have some cliff notes to really get everything they're talking about. But I enjoyed the night overall. I thought it was dramatically fulfilling as an end to Paul Mwadib's arc. I didn't realize he wasn't dead, but I walked away from that night being like, well, I don't feel like it needs a sequel. I don't feel it left me on much of a cliffhanger for night two, but I liked what I saw. And then night two came, and 
yeah, I like that as well with McAvoy and the setup of the plots and the return of the Baron. I was really brought in by this third era of the Dune saga and what was happening there. And then it started to suffer the same fault of the first Dune miniseries of what's going on? I'm becoming disinterested. Plots within plots become just confusion within confusion. Why is he playing with his worms? What the hell is he doing with the bad special effects running? The third night is a hell of a disappointment in my mind. But that's two nights recommend, so I'm going to give this a recommend. You recommend, like, people should see this. I just want to make sure I heard that right. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think it's worth seeing. I think there's more good here than bad. And having watched this, I said at the last one, when I watched the Dune miniseries, it made me intrigued about Dune, but I would never pick up a book. Well, now this has deepened my intrigue even so much more that I've decided I will listen to an audiobook. I'm not going to actually flip pages, <laughs> but while I'm at the gym or taking photos or whatever, I'm going to investigate what Frank Herbert wrote because I like what I'm seeing as like a trailer for something that will explain all the stuff I'm not getting. Uh, you know, I think to a certain point... There will be answers for you, but I feel like there are open-ended questions and that if your idea is that somehow someone will make all of this make sense, I think you're still headed for heartbreak there. And <laughs> and that makes me want to go back to Lynch and just say why I feel like his version is so preferable. Because again, yes, it doesn't make sense. Yes, the story is convoluted, but ultimately that's okay. I mean, Dune, you're going to feel that way. And particularly even when you read the novels, things just won't pan out. And so it's really a question of do you want to spend time in that world, the art direction, the sound design, the score, all of those elements are what are going to hold me. And that is the only one that feels cinematic to me. These TV movies feel bland and blah. And I can't, I can't imagine that you'd want to sit through any more of this style of filmmaking. I actually do. First of all, keep in mind, I may damn sci-fi for their movies, but I really loved the first few seasons of Battlestar Galactica, which came shortly after Children of Dune. In fact, I think I remember seeing the Children of Dune ads while watching Battlestar Galactica and maybe it was a rerun, but I saw the ads and it seemed like these had similar effects. And I'm actually disappointed that this is the end of our Dune discussion. I mean, I walked away from here like, he's a worm now? What does that mean? What is next? I had to race to a wiki because I don't get answers in a movie next week. Or you could go to my books and nachos. It's not out yet when we're recording this. I, I definitely, I am so eager to hear those book reviews because these miniseries, more than Lynch's movie, has interested me in the books. But you know, I, I feel bad for Jacob because he didn't like any of it. I like the miniseries. You like Lynch, but Jacob, you've been suffering through. <laughs> but I may get my answer. As we were planning this recording, I had done some research and found out the guy who made these miniseries still owned the rights to Dune, but I was shocked to see it's now coming back as what? It, they said TV and film or something? Legendary Pictures, who is behind a whole lot of movies we've covered and 
Godzilla and just uh, lots of superhero science fiction, all that kind of stuff. Big budget, big entertainment stuff. They have the property now and they are going to develop it. How they choose to develop it remains a mystery. It will probably depend on who signs on. I know at one point they had approached Peter Berg and then he made Battleship and he's probably not in the running anymore. I hear the latest is uh, the director of Arrival really is interested in this. So he's got a lot of Oscar clout and I think they may let him. And so that would be interesting because I think his sci-fi is more cerebral. And while legendary pictures might want to play up action and adventure, I do think there's a heady component to Dune's sociology that just it won't play as pure action film. It just cannot. Some of these concepts, they are all cerebral. And it's, yeah, I think you need a director that can work that balance. And so I guess Dennis, and I'll probably slaughter this name, Villeneuve is probably going to be the one to mount it. I know right now he's working on Blade Runner 2. So if that's a hit, I bet you they give him Doom. I look forward to seeing Leto the Worm Creature and see where he goes. It's going to have to be a really successful franchise to get that far. Or it could be TV. I mean, I really think that that is ultimately how you tell the story. You break it apart. You don't make it so Paul-centric. And you just take your time to mount the story of Mwadib from lots of different character vantage points and that we can learn about Fremen plots and all these other worlds naturally, incrementally. And for me, if it's going to be success, I got to know why to care because I think that's ultimately why even Lynch which I think is the best of these Dune films we've seen, failed for me, is I just, I never found a reason to care about this universe. And it looks cool. There's cool ideas there. I want to care about it. So I, I hope they're able to mine that out of these heavy plots and present that. Yeah, for my money is you're still best. If you really want to understand the world and know the hooks, you got to crack open a book that you go back to the Frank Herbert novel and the answers are there. It's a great book. And hopefully it's a great series. I don't know. I'm only three books in. I've liked two of them. One not so much, but they're leaving that trilogy behind. And I will, for the next three weeks, be covering the other three Frank Herbert novels, which are God Emperor Dune, Heretics of Dune, and Chapter House Dune. And do we know why they didn't make any more miniseries? Or specifically, Stuart, do you know why they didn't make any more miniseries? Because this was another rating success. Why'd it die? Well, I think two things. Sci-fi didn't need it. Battlestar Galactica took off and was a big hit. And suddenly they had something that was bigger than Dune. And they just didn't need to go back. And two, there's no answer for how to do God Emperor of Dune. It is largely plotless. And to leave all the characters you know behind for a worm just doesn't sound like something that a majority of people want to turn into. Tune into. Or turn into. <laughs> that worm creature does sound like something that's shown up on sci-fi already. Yeah, but not in this kind of movie. Not to be taken seriously. We, we, <laughs> we want to see him eat Pamela Anderson. We don't want to hear what he thinks about what we should be doing with our lives. Please, they can't afford Pamela Anderson. Tara Reid is who they're affording. <laughs> Here, Kirsty Swanson needs a job. <laughs> 
Indeed. And if you want to hear more about her, please join us at our donation series. We've still got a couple more weeks where it's available. We've covered all the sci-fi horror of 1986 in our gold level. We've now moved on to this Friday, the second movie in our Reanimator Platinum series. I know Arnie and Marjorie, you're big fans. I'm learning about this. It's really my first time ever fully watching and committing to this series. And it's my first time reading the Lovecraft Herbert West stories. And so I will be comparing and contrasting those there. Spoiler alert, I think it's the inverse of Dune. The movies are better than the book. But yes, I go into all of that in our review. But... We're coming to the end of our donation drive. We just have a few weeks left in the year. The donation drive ends at the end of the year. We could really use your support. And there's up to 16 bonus movie reviews as a thank you to those who donate. But even if these 16 don't jazz you, and we really hope they do, and God knows we've got a lot of acclaim for our Deadly Friend review. Yeah, it's been a very surprising series. Even if you think uh, horror's not my bag, we really do cover a lot of terrain there. And I think we have a lot of fun looking at different styles of horror and comedy, lots of comedy, even the ones that weren't good. You know, someone liked every single one of them, honestly. Yeah, I agree. A lot of them were intentionally funny and probably some of them are better for like Deadly Friend for (laughs) trying not to be funny, but being hilarious. And while we finish off Children of Dune, Children of the 80s may be excited to win Deadly Friend on DVD signed by Christy Swanson beep 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 you know the one kids I mean yeah this could be potentially Wes Craven's worst movie the worst movie of the year the worst movie of the decade I don't know but if you haven't seen it why not win a copy because you shouldn't spend money to but you should spend money to hear our review it's been lauded as our best of the year or our best ever by some listeners But you don't have to donate to win this DVD. In our forums, there's a thread where you can post what movie is your favorite that we're covering in this fall donation drive. And by posting, you're entered to win. If you want a direct link to that forum thread, head to nowplayingpodcast.com. Go to the Deadly Friend page in the archives. There's a link right there to our forum thread. And you don't have to donate to win. So we want to know which of these movies is your favorite. Is it Deadly Friend for guilty pleasure reasons? Is it Reanimator? Is it The Fly from the 50s or The Fly from the 80s? Just let us know and you are entered to win this DVD. And this contest ends December 31st, so don't delay. But yeah, we could really use your support. Head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate and help us out before the year ends. And that helps us to do more weekend of release releases. Like next week, we're leaving Arrakis and going to Yavin. We're going back to the galaxy far, far away. This franchise Lynch decided wasn't worth his time. Star Wars. Yeah, I, you know, it's only been a year since we covered all those films, but I, it does feel like it was a long time ago and, and far, far away. I, I don't know what this one is, and I, I'm curious to know, is it going to be connected with the movie we watched last year? And will it be up to the standards that you as Star Wars fans really need it to be? I'm more excited for it than I was for The Force Awakens, believe it or not. So... We will have that review next Tuesday and Bride of Reanimator in between. 
We'll get back to Lynch in 2017. I know people are wondering when are we going to cover Blue Velvet, but yeah, after Rogue One, we are also going to continue in our sci-fi vein and for six weeks, building up to the weekend release of the final chapter, covering the Resident Evil series. I, I played the video game. I've seen one of those movies. But uh, I don't know. It's a new territory for me. I bet you never wanted to see more after you saw the one, right? <laughs> it was a perfectly mediocre alien ripoff, as I recall. Well, it's from the director of Alien vs. Predator, so it's going to be fun. Yep. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And we'll be back Friday with Bride of Reanimator because the podcasts must flow. the sea but a person needs new experiences they draw something deep inside allowing him to grow without change something sleeps inside us and seldom awakens The sleeper must awaken. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Dune Movie Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Will we ever have peace, Wadeep? We'll have victory. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Stewart's reviews and analysis of Frank Herbert's original Dune novels. I thought of many pleasures with you. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, The Shining, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. This place is changing me. It's the spice. It's in the air we breathe, in the food we eat. I can't escape it. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. Whatever the need, we have the breed. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Come, Paul. Men are waiting. Me? Right now? It's time you participated. The time of plots and revenge is coming to an end. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Health and long life are the gifts of the spice. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I've seen how they died. <laughs> I'm dead to everyone unless I try to become what I may be.
You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Remember, one thing to gain control of your perceptions. Quite another to gain control of your desires. And if I succeed? You'll find reality to be quite a bit different than you thought. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. He is a natural leader, like his father. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. What's in the box? Pain. The pain! No! Enough! No woman, child, ever withstood that much. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. The voice from the outer world ringing the holy war she had the film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended the first step in avoiding a trap is knowing of its existence the opinions expressed on now playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated some thoughts have a certain sound. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Be sure he recalls his flimsy denials when he's face to face with death's sweet smile. The saga of June is far from over. King Arnie, why don't you give them the plot? Good luck to you. Keep it as simple as you can because it's a dense one. Two novels after all. Yeah, set a spell. (laughs) Kick your shoes off. And literally, I'm going to need you guys to make sounds like every five minutes or just take off my headphones and monologue. It's going to take more than 10? (laughs) It might. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we got the whole podcast to get into nuance. I mean, keep it high level. And the sad thing is I do. But there's two books here. It's 12 years after the events of Dune, and Galactic Emperor Paul Atreides, also known by his Fremen name, Muad'Dib. Muad'Dib. Also known by his... (laughs) Yeah. Muad'Dib. It's not Muad'Dib. It was Muad'Dib in Lynch's. Here it's Muad'Dib. And because I tried to not say Muad'Dib, I ended up with Muad'Dib. It's going to end up being like, Little Debbie. get it all wrong it'll make it more fun (laughs) we'll have more laughs but wensica played by susan sarandon has partnered with the spacing guild the jezi (laughs) bezer i'm just gonna let you too i'm not gonna correct the jedi bezerit yeah. <laughs> what? What? Where do you pronounce it again? Jezebezerit. Jezebezerit. Ben. Yeah. Ben. 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 Ben
The sad thing is, I was having a religious discussion. I kept wanting to bring up the Bene Gesserit in the middle of it. Like, wait, that's not real. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you could use the voice. (laughs) And the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother, as well as a face dancer named Seitel, to overthrow Muad'Dib. Did you say a face dancer? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a face dancer, right? Yeah. (laughs) I don't even know who you're talking about. I missed anything about face dancing. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be so much fun. More fun than the movie. I'm just like pointing out, yeah, that actor in the background, he's really important. <laughs> yeah, that was a whole plot. That was a thing. You're gonna no, you're gonna remember the face dancer before I get done with the next paragraph. Alright. Wait, real quick, is the face dancer the rapping midget? No. no. <laughs> oh. He's his friend. <laughs> Jacob's obsessed with the face dancer. I'm trying to th- I totally missed that phrase. <laughs> And using his newborn son's eyes, Paul kills the face dancer. Now do you know who he is? He was the guy with the knife hanging over the crib. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember that character. He also killed the rapping midget during this part, though, so it's easy to get confused. (laughs) It is. (laughs) I went high level. I just ignored the midget. (laughs) He raps, though. He does, like, ancient ancient medieval times rap. (laughs) Like a leprechaun episode. Well, now, Leto, along with his twin sister, (laughs) Gonorrhea? Gonna, yeah. (laughs) You can just call her Gani. Gandhi. Her name doesn't even matter. She don't do shit in this movie. Ganima? Is it Ganima? Okay. I think it's Gianima. Gianima, yeah. Something like that. And forms an alliance to overthrow Alia and to find peace by having Wensica's son for... I hate these names. <laughs> Feridin. Feridin. It's not spelled the way it sounds. And to find peace by having Wensica's son, Feridin, marry Paul's daughter, Ganymia. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like Harold Ramis. I'm just going to let it go. Ganima? 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 Just Gani. They call her Gani. <laughs> okay. Marry Paul's son or... <laughs> Me, I can't. Now you now simple words are losing you. <laughs> <laughs> the power of speech is going to be completely gone here in a couple of minutes. We need to wrap this shit up and get into it. <laughs> no, it's never oh. really. It's never really explained. I, or rather, it, God, I it's just gotten so bad now. There's three choppers what and two is ambulances. That? It's just I can't. Oh, okay, ambulance. I don't know when I'll be able to speak. <laughs> You need to speak. You've read the books. <laughs> I know, but while you can't speak, there's some song that ends with like ba da da ba da da, and I can't place it. But I've had it in my week all. I've had it in my head all week going muadib, muadib, muadib. <laughs> you gotta give me more than that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know any other notes. It might be who let the dogs out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a song like that. All right, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think you need a director that can work that balance. And so, I can't remember his name now. Let me get it. It's like Dennis something or rather. Hold on. What is your name? What is your name? Dennis Venevue something. It's probably something I can't pronounce. That's why I don't (laughs) remember it. Um, Hold on. It is. Yeah, it is. God damn it. 
<laughs> and so I guess Dennis, and I'll probably slaughter this name, Villeneuve, 